my mother would always say to me, the fruit is always out on the limb. And so you may have to stretch yourself a little bit. That's where you actually get to grow. That's what those things that make you uncomfortable is really where you have an opportunity to grow. This is Women Killing It. Each week, women who are killing it in their careers share their stories and advice for making it in today's working world. Your host is Sally Hubbard. Today's guest is Tamika Tremalio. Tamika leads Deloitte's Massive Greater Washington Practice, which is the largest audit, consulting, tax, and advisory practice in the area with more than 10,000 professionals. Congratulations, Tamika. You are killing it. Thank you very much, Sally. And thank you for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thank you. It is such a pleasure to be here. Could you start by talking about your current role at Deloitte? What does it involve? Thank you. So as you mentioned, it is an incredible privilege to serve our office in Greater Washington. Really what the role involves is being there for our people. So internally, certainly being there as a role model, but also with regards to wellness and the things that we do with Deloitte in terms of rolling out our strategy in our region. And then secondly, being involved with our clients and what we're doing to add value with our clients and that when they think of Deloitte, they all think of it in one way. And that's a really positive reflection. And then finally, I spend a lot of time in our community. So from a corporate citizenship perspective, we're focused on veterans, we're focused on health care, we're focused on poverty, you know, those issues that we consider to be really important, right step and college preparedness. So all of those things we want to be out in front and in the marketplace. So that's really what I'm involved in from a day-to-day perspective. That sounds like a lot. <laughs> it is quite a bit, but I really enjoy what I do. So it doesn't even feel like work, quite honestly. Wow, that's great. I'm sure there's not really any typical day, but what are the things that you kind of spend most of your time in terms of like, what do you do on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, it does really vary. You're right that there is no typical day. I would say that I typically spend time in some sort of community activity. So whether or not we are you know, involved in a diversity and inclusion effort or whether we're involved in college preparedness. So I usually you know, may go out to a school. I may speak to other women. I may speak to young women in a school, sort of combining our efforts. Um, so that is something that I do on a daily basis, also out with our clients and making sure that we're adding value and doing the things that are meeting their expectations. So a lot of those things to make sure that we are out in the marketplace, that they see Deloitte, um, and that certainly that we're being responsive as well. But the days are pretty long because to be able to fit all of those things in, it does take, you know, time to be pretty deliberate to make sure that those things are happening. And I want to hear about your career path and getting here. You know, you started off in law school, right? And can you just give a quick overview of of what your path looked like? Sure. So, you know, like every child, um, I think, you know, at the age of five is when people start to ask you what you're going to be, which is quite funny, right? But I I think I was sort of settled on being a lawyer. And the reason I thought I wanted to be a lawyer is that that's really what we saw as being prestigious in our community. And my father would always say that I was always willing to negotiate, you know, allowances and punishments, whatever that would be. So that was the right occupation for me. And so I really loved it, partly because I really like writing and I like speaking. So it seemed like the right fit. However, as I got older, I realized I really had a passion for numbers. And I, an undergrad, I had an undergrad in business and finance as well as political science. And so it really meant to me that it was important to focus on those things that I was really good at. But it also meant that I had to focus on things that I was really passionate. And I think in Mount St. Mary's, where I went to undergrad, they really did put a lot into finding your passion. And so I focused on pre-law and then I went off to law school and in my, you know, 
second year of law school, I decided, gosh, I really miss the numbers side. And I decided then that I was going to get my MBA. And, you know, at University of Maryland, they had not done that a lot. So as you can imagine, I was going to law school in Baltimore, and that's where the University of Maryland Law School is. But they're MBA program was in College Park, and it was really hard to go from you know Baltimore to College Park. So I asked them, could I do it with University of Baltimore? They were absolutely willing and acceptable of trying to do that. And so we were one of the first, me and my roommate actually, were one of the first to do the JD MBA program with University of Baltimore, and it worked out well. It was great. As you know, in business school, it's a lot of teaming and activities around the team and what you know people are bringing to the table. And law school is pretty individual. So it really did play it, I think, both of what I consider to be my strengths. Oh, wow. That's interesting. You literally crafted your own joint JD MBA program. (laughs) Well, you know, they existed, but as you can imagine, 25 years ago, um, it was not something that a lot of people did. So it really was an opportunity to sort of create something. And I am so incredibly grateful that I did. And then from uh, law school and, and and getting your MBA, what was your first job after that? So my first job was actually in the tax practice, because as you can imagine, people didn't know what to do with the JD MBA. It was, you know, investment banking or it could be tax or but either, you know, in some way you were to give up one over the other. And so I decided to go into tax and I was doing transfer pricing work, um, which I really enjoyed. But it just touched upon the forensic nature, you know, because transfer pricing was about, you know, taking assets offshore. And that's really very forensic in nature. And so I was asked to do a rotation in our forensic practice that was supposed to be about three months and it ended up being about nine years. And it was fantastic because it was the best way to really combine business and law. And was this at Deloitte? No, it actually was at one of the other big four. Oh, okay. Okay. At what point did you join Deloitte? So right around the time of Enron, it made it pretty challenging for people to do anything outside of audit and tax within the big, it was five at that time. Um, And so it was a time when we had to consider if we wanted to stay in the forensic and the litigation field, it was really difficult to stay within the big four. And so I decided to join a company that was a private company at that time and then became a public company about two years after I had been there. And it was that, too, was a phenomenal experience. I I learned really early on that you had to take risks. You know, my mother would always say to me, the fruit is always out on the limb. And so you may have to stretch yourself a little bit. And it was scary, quite frankly, leaving, you know, this massive organization to join, you know, a really small organization. I was the 762nd employee. So it was really scary to me. But I've learned from that experience that that's where you actually get to grow. That's what those things that make you uncomfortable is really where you have an opportunity to grow. And so that's what I did by joining this company that then became public. And then we later sold the practice to another accounting firm. And then I joined Deloitte. And I have never looked back. It offered me all of the things that I really wanted to do in terms of the international exposure, because we had all of these member firms that we work exceptionally well with, and that has allowed me me to do the things I love to do in the international space. It also really looked at the things that I thought was important in terms of what my goals were and what I wanted to do in the future. And they really have helped to carve that path for me. So it's really been a great experience. I love this saying, the fruit is always out on the limb. I have not heard that before. Yes, my mother would tell me that all the time. I don't think she crafted it, quite honestly, but it was something that she would say quite a bit. 
That is a great thing. I'm going to start drilling that into my children's minds because that is so true. And when you talk about children, it actually does strike me that the one thing that I, I, you know, there's a lot of things that I I wish I had known. But one thing in particular, I heard a woman who was the CEO of Girls Who Code. She mentioned that we teach our girls to be perfect and we teach our boys to be brave. And I thought about it. I was like, wow, is that what happened to me? But the reality was when I was a child, my father was incredibly active with me, as was my mother. And they did teach me to be brave. They taught me to, you know, get dirty, to play in the mud, to, you know, learn how to ride motorcycles on, you know, the fields because my brothers were doing it. Like they taught me those sorts of things. And I think if we think about that, particularly with our girls and not make them feel like they have to be prim and proper and don't get your dress dirty and don't fall in the mud, that teaches them like valuable lessons oh, that yeah. we just don't, we sort of take for granted because you don't correlate playing in the dirt with oh, yeah. taking risk later in life. But it's very, very true. And I think that perfectionism is just such a trap. Oh, it is. Yeah. It is. Okay. <laughs> so you've got this really big job. You've had this very interesting and exciting career path. Are there any particularly proud moments that really stand out in your mind in your career? Yeah, so many of those moments. But one that sort of stands in my mind that I can tell you that I would not have done, you know, 20 years ago. And that is around authenticity. So about two years ago, we had a women's program at Deloitte. And we were having a guest speaker there by the name of Joyce Roche, and she had written this book called The Empress Has No Clothes, The Imposter Syndrome. And I had read Joyce's book, and in particular, I read the excerpt that she had on a letter to her younger self. And I thought it was really phenomenal. And so as I was preparing our other three partners for this, I said to them, please make sure that you, you know, think of some things that you would tell your younger self. And so, of course, because I have really perfect partners and type A partners, they said, oh, well, you want us to write a letter? And I thought, well, you know, I'm asking you this three days before a panel. So that's not really what I meant. But if you would, are so inclined to write a letter, absolutely. So all three of them wrote these amazing letters. And so I'm sitting there the night before and I thought, oh my gosh, well, I guess I have to write a letter as well. And as I was putting together this letter, I thought, do I actually say the truth? Like if no one were watching or do I say what is politically correct or what I think people would want to hear? And I decided, I don't know if it was a product of being tired, it was one o'clock in the morning, or if it was just time when I felt like I really needed to be my authentic self. And I also thought about, you know, they, they talk oftentimes about if you can see it, you can be it. But sometimes we make our leaders these fictitious people that there's no way that anybody could be where they are because clearly they were even born into it or they got lucky or whatever it happens to be. And I thought, you know what, I want to be really authentic and tell them about my life. And so I started writing this letter and I remember even as I wrote it, like I may not read all of this. I may not read, this is where I'll skip this part. But I really did talk about growing up in the country. I talked about, you know, my mother being pregnant with me at the age of 18. I talked about being in a horrific driving accident and, you know, not not knowing if she actually felt really proud of me and how I didn't know she was proud of me until I was 25 years old. And, you know, all of these things that you were doing to push yourself and, you know, to prove that you belonged or you should be there. And it really resonated with people and it was real. And I think that that's something that often people don't tell the real story. And that's what really makes a difference. And I will tell you, since reading that letter now, you know, over two years ago and writing it, and we've now had it on Deloitte Net and our CEOs and our global CEOs have written their letter, um, it really has made a huge difference. Because, you know, at Deloitte, we really have pushed having this culture of courage.
courage. And I think that's what it's about is being authentic and feeling like you can really do these things. It's so interesting because I feel like this is a relatively new idea that so many people are coming around to is kind of the power of authenticity. Mm-hmm. And it's like we have to undo kind of a training that we've gotten. Like, I mean, I remember when I first started at a big law firm and I felt like I was being trained to conform and to not be me. Absolutely. The more I talk to people on this podcast who are really killing it, the more they really do connect with who they really are, that's where they find the success. Yeah, there is no question. And, you know, just like you, Sally, when I was starting my career, I... What we do is we exemplify whatever it is we see that we think is successful. And, you know, typically it had been a male figure. And so the male figures had monogrammed, you know, shirts and they wore neckties. And so I wore monogrammed shirts and neckties. And in fact, I remember seeing a woman probably about eight to 10 years in and she had a dress on with like flowers. And I was like, wow, I can't believe someone would wear that to work because that wasn't what we saw as being successful. And it was such a beautiful and appropriate outfit but I was not used to doing that. And then finally, when I decided, you know what? I can wear the things that make me feel good, right? I can wear the things that are appropriate and professional, but they may not be what a male would wear. And that's okay. So kind of letting go of that, I think, really does make a huge difference. And so this is one example of something that you've learned throughout your career that you kind of wish you would have known when you were starting out. And I love to ask my guests this question. So what are some other things that you know now that you wish you would have known when you were starting your career? Yeah, so, you know, one thing that sticks out is a book called Carla's Pearls, and in that she talked about this pie, and she described it as P-I-E. And I know that she she mentioned that it came from a gentleman by the name of Harvey Coleman who had originally come up with this concept. But she said the P stands for performance, the I stands for image, hence back to the flower dress, and the E stands for exposure. And she said success really is simply this pie. And as minorities and or females, we typically spend so much time on the performance Mm -hmm. because we were taught to keep our head down, Mm -hmm. to be responsive, to know you're technically to be incredibly proficient. And certainly those are the things that we want to do and make sure that we do. But we spend all of the time in that, that there's no time for anything else. There's no time to think about your image. What are you portraying to people before you open your mouth? There's no time to think about exposure. So you're sitting in an office and you're wondering, how is it that Bob got promoted and I didn't? Well, Bob was going and attending the networking events. Bob was showing up at the things outside of the work hours. Bob wasn't just concerned about turning in the work. Yes, Bob was doing the work too. And if it meant that at midnight he was going home and doing it and you were doing the same thing, but he was getting it done, it really was important that you were getting the exposure. And instead of thinking of performance as 90% of that pie and fitting in image and exposure into that 10%, it really is important to think of performance as 10%, particularly as you become more senior. Image is 30%. And the other 60% should be on exposure. So who are you meeting? What's your network? How are you connecting the dots? And I wish someone had said to me, Tamika, you need to spend more time in the exposure side. Now, I probably was never 
10% at performance because I actually really liked people and enjoyed going to events and doing different things. And so I probably did spend more time than, you know, the 10% on exposure, but it was really important that you spend more time there because that's really what qualifies as being successful. Yeah, I could not agree more on this. And I think this is a trap that women fall into more often than men that we think if you just, you know, put your head down and just work your butt off and you just do an amazing work quality that that is going to reap rewards. And it's just not the way the game is played. And hey, we didn't make the game, so... Maybe we don't know the rules and it takes longer for us to find that, learn those rules, right? right? But if you think about even going through grad school, you spent 20 years with your head down getting an A because you did the work and that's what qualified as success. Right. So that's what you think, you know, as you get older, that you just continue to do right. that. It's a pattern. Whereas the reality is it's that and the other things that really make up for it. And it's not, you know, you, you can't expect anything else from anyone because that's how we learn. And you see this huge disjunct, right, where women come out of education, out of college and, and higher degrees, and they have the top grades. Yes. And then that somehow doesn't translate to the working world. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because it's a completely different game, you it know. Is. And I know that my own self, I did not really appreciate networking until I became a journalist and then I had to do it for my job. Yes. Up until that point, it was, okay, I've got all my work I have to do for my job. I've got a family at home. There's no time. I know I'm supposed to be networking, but it feels kind of artificial anyway. I don't want right. to use people. That's how I felt about it. And mm -hmm. and um, I don't have time for that. You know, right. I've got to do my work. And that was just so misguided. So misguided. Absolutely. <laughs> it it is. It is. It is. And, you know, even now when we think about our children and how we're raising them with, you know, everyone seems to have this concern over artificial intelligence, for example. And the reality is our children are very equipped because up to third grade, they are taught to be creative and to think outside of the box and to do those things. And we need to nurture that and continue to nurture that so that when, you know, those jobs that are very automated that we have that people are doing now, when those things become computerized, we want our children to be more creative. So we do have to nurture that too at a very young age. Yeah, and, and definitely just the, the value of meeting people. I mean, if you think about every big opportunity that you've oh, gotten in life has come from a person, probably. That's right, that's right. Right? Yes, absolutely. And the other thing is, you know, obviously you have to do good quality work product, but I do find that I, a thing that I had to repeat to myself a lot to combat my imperfectionism is done is better than perfect, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes we, the work product doesn't actually have to be perfect. <laughs> you could spend that Imagine time. that. <laughs> and you know what? Our done is probably still pretty darn close to perfect, exactly, right? Exactly. But other people's done is like, you know, sort of sliding the paper yeah. out of their door. That's not us anyway, right? right? right. So it is harder to, to think about that. And I do, I, I suffer with that too, daily, quite frankly. But if you're going to make time for the critically important I and E, that's right. You've got to let go of a little bit of that perfectionism or you'll just burn out. <laughs> yes. And you know, it's so interesting. I, I know I mentioned earlier around, you know, Joyce Roche and talking about this imposter syndrome, but that perfection is exactly what drives us to sort of burn out, right? Mm -hmm. Because it, and the reason that we're doing it is because we somehow feel like they're going to find out we don't belong here. We shouldn't be doing this. And so we continue to push and push and push. And that wears you out. Yeah. That burns, you know, people out in general. So it's about sort of finding that appropriate balance for right. sure. And, you know, it's, it's, we understand that we do need to be 
the best to get recognized, right? I mean, no question. You know, so there is that reality to it, but it's not going to serve us well if we're completely burned out and decided, you know, forget this, I'm going to Costa Rica, which is like, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> crossed my mind a few times, I must admit. No, absolutely. <laughs> Especially on a cold day. Yes. I also want to hear about the role of mentors in your career. And I know um, you were saying that we're not always going to find the perfect mentors. How did you find mentors throughout your career path? And, and what did that look like? You know, that's a great question. And and so the first is having the distinction, of course, between sponsors and mentors. And I think, you know, your mentors really are people that you have chosen, right? You pick out, you think that, you know, there are things that they exemplify that you would like to be able to replicate in some way. Your sponsors are the people that are in the room that can pound the table for you in your absence. And so, you know, for me, I've had the privilege of having both wonderful sponsors and wonderful mentors. So I grew up in a family with incredibly strong women who, you know, informally were my mentors. So my aunt, for example, was a speech language therapist. And I remember going to college with her in the summer times. I think I was nine years old and she was at the University of Maryland in College Park and she worked incredibly hard. She had phenomenal patients that I would sit in and watch and hear her talking to them. And I remember, you know, one summer, unfortunately, her lung had collapsed. I was staying with her and she was up until probably one o'clock in the morning trying to type a paper. And you can imagine it back in those days, I actually had a typewriter and I saw how hard she worked in spite of, you know, being very ill. And so I then sat down and took that paper and proceeded to type until seven o'clock in the morning, you know, with one finger. And at that time you had the little white out and you'd backspace in the white and, you know, and my aunt woke up and she had this two-page paper, which I had typed the front and the back of a piece of paper, if you can imagine that, and which single space, something she could absolutely not use, but it was that sort of work ethic that you learned at a really young age. Now, you know, back to your your point, Sally, around like done is probably better than perfect. Like this was probably not acceptable, but it was, it taught me. And, you know, I know she never did anything with that paper, but she was incredibly appreciative. She taught me how, you know, hard work was really important. So I had, you know, lots of women in my life growing up that I really could learn from. I also have the benefit that as an adult, like there are other women out there that are like me and that we've connected connected and bonded. And, you know, I have my really close personal advisory board, as we talked about, that is really helpful for me that you can tell your deepest, darkest secrets to. Um, I even look at my husband as being a mentor to me because, quite frankly, he gives me the male perspective. And sometimes he'll say to me, that's not what a man would do. Why are you doing it that way? And it's good to hear those things too. And that's really played a significant role, but it's so important that you do that. I also think that you can't always look for a mentor or a sponsor that looks like you always, because if you do that, you're so limited. If you look for an African-American female, unfortunately, you're going to be limited in terms of what your choices are. You need to look for people who have similar characteristics, similar goals that exemplify what you want to accomplish and not be restricted to someone who is a female or someone who is, you know, of color, but rather be much broader in terms of the people that you're looking for. Because I've been incredibly blessed to have people as mentors and sponsors that didn't look anything like me, but were willing to help me and support me in my career. A lot of the women I've had on this show have said that their mentors have been men, you know, and a lot of that is just the reality of those were the people in higher positions, you know, during our time. And then there's been criticism of women not mentoring enough. But then there's also this problem of, you know, 
if you've got one woman at the top and then there's all these women at the bottom and they all want her to be the mentor, yes. it's like, no, she's got to do her job. Yes. She's got to do the pie. She can't yes. be only mentoring. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. And so you have to find other ways to get that. So, you know, we, I am incredibly blessed to have a female CEO at Deloitte. And, you know, I know that she doesn't have a ton of time to sit down with me every day and tell me, yes, you should, that's a good idea or no, that's a, so instead I watch from afar and I see the things that she does. So I see the tone that she's that's at the top around our culture of courage. I see that she's an authentic person. And as a result, you exemplify that. It doesn't mean that you have to have the one-on-one time with them. It means that they are leading by example and you can follow their example. So sometimes you have to take advantage of that as well because everybody doesn't have the time to be able to spend the one-on-one time from you. And you still can get the mentoring that you need. And how did you go about getting the sponsors? Because I know that can be a real challenge to get someone who's actually advocating for you. Yeah. So, you know, I think sponsorship is really about a relationship. And I I tell people that often there has to be some sort of connection. So in every relationship, there's give and take. Right. And, And so it's so important that you engage with that person. So you find ways to help them then they feel like they want to find ways to help you. It's very hard to talk about someone's work or how good someone writes if you've never seen them write, right? Or you've never seen them in action. So getting an opportunity to be in their presence, to write something for them, to do something for them makes a huge difference. And so you have to look for those opportunities so that you really are developing and nurturing the sponsoring relationship as opposed to, you know, expecting that someone's just going to do something for you. And that's where the performance part comes in because you still have to do good work for them, right? So they see your good work. Absolutely. And then they feel comfortable advocating for you because they're not going to advocate for you. You know, they know they're putting their reputation on the line when they're doing that, right? That's exactly right. And they have to have real examples. So if you're a great writer, write a paper that you can co-author with them or bring them along. Or if you like, you know, putting together speeches, suggest to them that you'd like to get involved with one of their speeches and and write it for them and tell them your ideas. and, And then they'll feel more comfortable sponsoring you because it really is a give and take relationship with anything that truly works. And then do you ever ask them for any kind of sponsorship situations like, or has it just happened? Like where they advocated for you? Like, did you ever say, Hey, I'm, I'm applying for this position. You know, I would appreciate if you could put in a good word for me or has it been more just organic that that just kind of happened? Yeah. So it's both. You know, certainly there are opportunities where, you know, you are interested in something or something comes to your attention and you could reach out to your sponsor and say, you know, do you think this is a good idea? Is this something that I should do? Um, And then get their feedback and get them engaged with it. And then they feel like they want to become a part of it. And then there are certainly opportunities that you don't even know about that they are sponsoring you or putting you up for. Those, quite honestly, are the best ones because, you know, you really, if you become aware of it, then everybody else has become aware of it too, right? If they happen to be in the room and recognize an opportunity for you, it also probably is something that's going to stretch you because it's not something that's in your purview. So those are really great opportunities as well. And I, I think that that's probably the best one is for them to find opportunities for you. But absolutely, you need to own your own career. Misty Copeland said, I will what I want because it's really important that you actually direct those things. So if it's a sponsor that can help you to make those things happen, then use them for that reason. But if they also come up with things, take advantage of those opportunities as well. I will what I want. I love that. I will what I want. (laughs) Yes, I think it was part of the Under Armour commercial, but Misty Copeland said, I will what I want. And I was like, that's absolutely true. We control what happens I have an interview. Everyone should 
go back and check out an interview with my life coach, Jill Richberg, and her whole framework for coaching is all about figuring out what you're willing to have in your life mm-hmm. and, and kind of willing it, you know, really living in that intentional way of figuring out what you really are willing to have or do be or have. No, I love that. <laughs> I love that. Uh, you also mentioned your personal advisory board. I call that sometimes my squad. Yes, yes. Right? And that can just be so important, especially with dealing with some of the issues that we have that are so common among women in, in terms of um, imposter syndrome and whatnot. You know, when you have that squad that's rooting for you mm-hmm. and reflecting back at you your best qualities that you sometimes don't see. I mean, is that what does your personal advisory board do for you? Yeah, so, you know, I rely on them probably to exhaustion. In fact, I'm certain my personal advisory board is so done with me because there's always something that I'm like, what do you think of this? But I really think that has been really critical for my success. I really do. I feel like having someone to run issues by, to ask, does this make sense? To ask if you're crazy, to teach you to own your brilliance. You know, all of those things are really, really critical. And I think you have to have that. You know, very few people make it on their own in life, quite honestly. And I think having that group of people that I'm really close to that can actually tell me you really screwed up or you really shouldn't have said that or I know that's not what you meant, but that's how it came across or what you did hurt someone's feelings or, you know, you need to be more compassionate or think about it from their position. Those things you need to hear. You also need to hear you're great sometimes too. And I think having that board that does that is really, really great. And I think, again, having that as a pretty diverse board is really pivotal too in terms of your success. And when you put together your own personal advisory board, did that just happen organically through friends or was it deliberate process? You know, I think it was pretty deliberate. So someone had said to me, you know, you need to have three you know, categories, if you will, of boards. And one they said was strategic. So, you know, who's going to help you to go from step A to step B to step C? You need to have one that's operational, sort of who's going to help you to get that done. So your technical team, if you will, those people who are helping you to focus on performance. And then you have to have your personal board. And so I was really deliberate about all three of those because I do think that they all play a significant role, but you have to have someone in each of those buckets because that's really really what helps you to get to the next point. It also keeps you grounded because otherwise there are some days that one, you have to sort of check yourself and be reminded, but there are also people that are helping you to think sort of outside of the box and who are pushing you and, you know, become your cheering squad as well. So do you have three separate boards or you have those different roles within your one board? I have three separate boards. Wow. Yes, because they are very different. So if you think about operational, so how are we serving our clients and how can I get the job done? That's a group of sort of go-to people. That's my team, right? That's the people who are helping you get all those things. And so when I talk to you about what I do in this role around clients and then internal and corporate citizenship, there's a team that helps me to get that done. That's operational. When I talk about strategic, that's your sponsor's and who's helping you to get from point A and point B. They're very different because you're not going to have those personal conversations like, I can't believe my you know, son did X or Y. Or, you know, and those are real things because we all know that if things aren't right at home, things aren't right in all of the other places either. And so, but those are, they're very different. And you do have to sometimes draw those lines. Um, I think that they, there are occasions where they overlap because quite frankly, there's not enough hours in the day to keep each one of them separate. But there are occasions where they don't. And I think it's important that you understand the distinction. 
And are the operational and strategic boards inside of Deloitte and then the personal board outside of Deloitte? You know, primarily, yes, I would say that's correct. But there are people on my strategic board that are not at Deloitte as well. Wow, I need to get myself some boards. Yes. <laughs> but you know, it's so funny, Sally. I would say that I don't think of it really formally. So if you ask me to list them, right, you know, there are some that may overlap, quite mm-hmm. honestly. But I do know, oh, gosh, I've got to get this done. Who's going to help me to get this done? And I know who those go-to people are. Whereas I know if there's days that just aren't good, I know, you know, I have my little group that I can send a message to and say, oh, my gosh, this is a really difficult day. And these are the reasons why. Wow. I mean, I definitely have the girl squad. I have yes. a couple of different squads. See, uh, so you probably have the same thing. But they're thing. personal. I mean, they're just, I think they're, I think I have them all in the personal category. Mm-hmm. I need to get some operational and strategic boards going on. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Although all my podcast guests are kind of my strategic. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, put me, I was totally getting ready to say, put me on your strategic board, please. <laughs> because I get to glean this wisdom on a, you know, Yes, and they're, they're helping basis. you to connect oh, the yeah. dots. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In fact, one of the things on my list of to-dos is to write a book about how I have been implementing the advice that I've been hearing on this show. Mm-hmm. And my career is in a completely different place than it was. Like, it really skyrocketed from the time that I started this podcast. That is fantastic. If you speak to wise, successful women every week and Mm -hmm. really take to heart what they're saying to you and actually implement it, it does make a difference. It does make a difference. (laughs) And then you're like, oh, my gosh, I've screwed this up. I've screwed that up. But it does make a huge difference. Absolutely does. I want to just get a, a few more of those things that you know now that you wish you would have known when you started your career. We talked about how important it is to get exposure and to not just focus on performance. How do you go about getting the exposure? Because I think certainly there's networking, but then how do you go about, you know, getting your good work recognized? Mm-hmm. No, it's a, it's a great point because, you know, it oftentimes is difficult because sometimes, you know, we, we've heard when people, other people take credit for your work and, you know, but I think partly because I was, I had found myself always to be in a situation where, you know, someone didn't recognize the things that you had done that I I started saying, like, you know, this is what I created. What do you think of this? Because, again, you have to will what you want. And so if you are deliberate about the things that you've done, the things that your team has done, I mean, I really think it's important that you're bringing other people up with you as well. So sharing that, you know, Matt or Scott or, you know, Susan had this great idea and expressing that to others is really, really pivotal because then they want to do more with you and for Mm -hmm, you. Right. mm -hmm. But at the same time, making it clear that this is what you were able to get accomplished, I think is really a big deal. And it's okay. You know, men do that all the Mm -hmm. time. It is no problem for you to talk about the things that you've done. The, The challenge is, is when you become so insecure with, you know, feeling like you belong, that you sort of start there, right? When you're like, wow, look at what I've done. You feel like you have to do that because otherwise you don't belong in this room. And, you know, who knows why you got in that position? You shouldn't really be there. So you have to make sure it's coming from a good place, right? Right. Um, But it's really important that you talk about the things that you've really been able to accomplish. And, you know, when you ask your question around what would I tell my younger self? There are many things that I often tell women in particular, but, you know, a couple of them resonate with me. One is playing to your strengths. So I like people. I like having conversations with people. I'm genuinely interested in other people. And I actually really want to help. So that's a strength. So I play to that strength. 
most days. Instead of focusing on the things that I'm not good at, I mean, God knows there are many things that I'm not good at. And for a long time, you learn that you really had to focus on those development areas. Get better at this, get better at this, get better at this. And it can weigh you down. Whereas if you think about the things that you're really good at and start to play to those, your whole life turns yeah. around because then you have the confidence to work on those development areas because you know at least at the end of the day there are some things that I'm good at yeah. and that's really really important and then I think the final thing that I would say in terms of what I would tell my younger self or you know other women is you really have to enjoy the journey because we get so focused on what the end outcome is. You know, when I'm going to get to that final step in my career, when I'm going to be at the top, whatever that happens to be for you, that we forget to enjoy the journey. And so often when I'm talking to people, they're like, oh, when I become a senior associate, when I become a manager, when I become a partner, and I'm like, how about right now, enjoying what you do now? You know, someone had said to me, if you focus so much on the next thing, you're bound to screw up what you're actually doing because it's really important to enjoy enjoy the journey. And that I learned through yoga, quite frankly, as opposed to, you know, any other strategic or operational person. It was really about sort of being present in that moment and actually truly enjoying it. And I think people forget to do that. Oh, definitely. It's such a challenge though too, right? Because when you're an ambitious person and you're always striving and you're striving and, and that's a good quality to be ambitious, it right? Is. But there is some measure of dissatisfaction involved with ambition, mm -hmm. right? It you necessarily have to be slightly unsatisfied with where you are to be trying to go somewhere else. That's right. So getting that balance where you're not just striving, striving, and you take moments to be grateful of, you know, where you've been and what you've done. And, you know, like, I know I have my eye on my next thing. The other day, my neighbor said to me, Sally, you know, you are now where you said you wanted to be a year ago. And I really hadn't even taken time to pause and so and yeah. celebrate it. Yeah. Yes. Celebrate it. Be grateful for it. You know, mm -hmm. that, that gratitude. But it's hard. It's a difficult balance, right? Mm -hmm. It really, really <laughs> is. And one of my partners, um, Kelvin Womack, said to me that he lives in a constant state of gratitude. I mean, that hit me like a rock because I thought— God, if you wake up every day and are so grateful, it's hard to have a bad day, right? It yeah. really, really is because, you know, the other option is not waking up, right? right? So if you just think about like being in this constant state of gratitude, it really does make a huge difference. It really does. So I've learned that as well. Oh, wow. Okay, I got to work on that. I know. <laughs> There's so much I need to work on, but at least it's a good start, right? Well, I'm grateful that I got to talk to you today. Thank you very much. I am grateful as well. Thank you so much for taking the time. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to our podcast, rate and review us on iTunes, and most importantly, tell a friend about us. Thanks for joining us.